0: Tito's Handmade Vodka had been mixed with its fair share of cocktails. But one night, a chilled glass topped with lime and cranberry would change everything this bottle knew about happy hour. From the producers of America's favorite vodka, it turns out the cocktail you've been waiting for was right there the whole time. The Tito's Rom Cosmo. You'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll sip with Tito's. Coming to cocktail parties near you at titosvodka.com. 40% alcohol by volume, namely 80 proof crafted to be savored responsibly.
2: Hello there, it's Jamila Jamil. Are you by any chance listening to this podcast promo while out on a walk? If so, good for you. That's going to make both your mind and your body feel better. On my podcast, I Weigh, this month, we're going to be exploring mental health and talking to amazing guests about other things that you can do to make yourself feel better with guests like Simon Sinek from The Optimism Company, therapist Vienna Farron, comedian Neil Brennan, and more. Listen to I Weigh wherever you get your podcasts.
3: People, the holidays are coming up. Why not give yourself the gift of Stitcher Premium? What's Stitcher Premium? Oh, only the best way to listen to podcasts, commercial-free, things you can't get anywhere else. And right now, we're going to give you 50% off your first payment for a limited time when you go to StitcherPremium.com and use the promo code FRIDAY50. That's right, fri day Y five zero With Stitcher Premium, you get 21,000 hours of original content like Marvel's Wolverine, which is fantastic, Issa Rae's Fruit, access to exclusive bonus episodes of your favorite podcasts uh, like Freakonomics and Bitch Sesh, ad-free archives, and hundreds of stand-up comedy albums. Just go to stitcherpremium.com and use the promo code FRIDAY50, that's FRIDAY50, for 50% off your first Payment, Go do it. Black Friday lives. Lights, camera, listen. People, let me tell you about this podcast. Uh, if you like Unspooled, I think you're going to like Screen Dive. It comes from 20th Century Fox. And it's a brand new podcast that takes you behind the scenes of legendary films. I'm talking about movies like The Sandlot, Young Frankenstein, The Devil Wears Prada, Super Troopers, and Planet of the Apes. There is something for everyone. It's basically like listening to a DVD commentary without seeing the images, but yet everyone's there. I don't know. It's a roundtable discussion. It's an amazing deep dive into our favorite films. So subscribe right now to Screen Dive and get started on your journey into the Fox filmography. It's 1982, and hey, you got your Holocaust drama in my love story. Hey, you got your love story in my Holocaust drama. It's Sophie's Choice. Welcome to Unspooled. I am Paul Shear, and this is the show where we watch one film from the AFI's top 100 greatest films of all time, the 2007 edition, to see if they are really as good as people say, do they hold up, and how they influence the films that we watch now. Amy Nicholson, my co-host, is away right now judging a film festival in Egypt, but that doesn't stop me from reading some of your posts from last week's episode, which, of course, was Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. And don't you fret, she will be here for the Sophie's Choice discussion, just not for this part right here. Uh, Trapper Sean EIT writes, uh, regarding the anecdote about Gene Arthur's good side, I had always heard that was attributed to Claudette Colbert by Capra after filming It Happened One Night. Not Arthur. Well, let's get them both in here. Sean, get... (laughs) get Jean in here? Get Claudette in here? I don't know. Does anyone know who this is right for? Is it Claudette Colbert who had a good side or is it Jean Arthur? We will never know unless maybe our good friend, Karina Longworth, writes a book about it or does an amazing podcast about it. We will find out. Uh, Bill Rutherford writes this. I heard Jean Arthur use the term French leave in the movie Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. And I remember laughing. It's not a phrase I hear often, so I thought it was cool just turned up on my Twitter feed today. French leave, I always Heard like an Irish goodbye. That's what I always know it as. Um, maybe it's a French exit, but I like uh, a French leave. Let's just say a French leave. Uh, you know, Irish goodbye found, sounds a little bit more, uh, I don't know. It it, it it feels like it has some more weight. Like a French, a French leave seems like oddly poetic and sweet. Oh, what a beautiful French leave. We cried at the airport, we hugged, and they went and ate a baguette. Um, Benevolent Knievel writes, it's no coincidence that Caddyshack resembles a Marx Brothers film. According to Ramis, Caddyshack functions as a Marx Brothers film. Wow, ah, look at that. He says, Dangerfield is Groucho, Murray is Harpo, and Chevy Chase is Chico. I had to think about that before I pronounced the name. Um, so we were kind of right. And finally, Toby Luisa Ernst writes, I have a profoundly unpopular opinion, and I'm readying myself to be flamed for it. But wholesome and virtuous, though he may be, I'm not really sure Mr. Smith being in the Senate is a good thing. I mean, setting aside the corruption that surrounds him, a huge caveat, I know, he legitimately does not seem to know a single thing about how legislation works. I mean, during a How a Bill Becomes a Law Scene with Gene Arthur, she has to explain to him uh, (laughs) that someone needs to write the bill down. Isn't that just a bit much? I mean, we're supposed to take it at face value that he's a (laughs) single issue boys camp is a good idea because... It's his? I get that I'm looking at it from a 21st century perspective, but this seems especially light. Well, uh, Toby, I don't disagree with you, but I will say this. You know, we can't take... we can't take for granted how much we're exposed to politics, how much information we have at our fingertips. Uh, you know, you would think that probably people ran originally just because they wanted to improve the society. And then they get into the system and they learn how the society works. I think you're seeing that a lot now with a lot of these people that were elected this year. You know, people are brand new. They, they are passionate. They're running on issues. And now they have to figure out how to work within that system. I think any job that you have, you don't quite know how to react. I remember my first acting job. I was in this movie, The Onion Movie, a great film. And um, at the end of my day shooting, it was my only day on the film, uh, they applauded me out. And I thought it was because I did such a good job. Little did I know, that's the industry standard. Like when you rap out on anything, they applaud you out. I thought I was like, wow, I must've done so good. They all applauded me. You just you got to learn by doing. So, Toby, I would say give Mr. Smith another chance. If he's still this dumb uh, after a re-election, I would say, or maybe like a year into it, then we could revisit the conversation. All right. So last week, we asked you all uh, to make your Sophie's choice. Um, The Sophie's choice was between Martin Scorsese and Steven Spielberg. If you had to kill one of them from the list, who would it be? I mean, it's a very tough choice. Let's listen to what you had to say.
4: My decision for Amy's choice, it's a really tough one, but I have to go with keeping Scorsese. When he makes a lackluster film, it still has a lot of interesting stuff going on in it, but when Spielberg makes a lackluster film, it's just kind of bland and
3: boring. I've got to keep Spielberg in there. He's got more variety. He's got bigger crowd pleasers, and he pays tribute to more films. I love Martin Scorsese's films, but Steven Spielberg, I think, just makes Good blockbusters. They're, they're movies that the whole family can go to.
0: Because for two hours, one summer afternoon, when I was 11 years old, Steven Spielberg made me believe, like really believe that dinosaurs still walk the earth. And I know that's kind of cheesy, but I'm kind of cheesy. And Spielberg makes being cheesy feel cool.
3: Scorsese is the reason I fell in love with movies, the reason I wanted to become a filmmaker. When I saw Raging Bull at the age of 17, Spielberg is for the populace, and Scorsese is for the soul-searchers.
5: I can watch Scorsese's movies day after day after day after day and never get bored of them.
0: So yeah, if we're getting rid of one of the directors, I'd say doodles, Steven Spielberg.
4: I would eliminate Scorsese. His movies are way more punk rock, and
3: I think it actually makes them cooler to not be on the list. I guess if you're pushing me to make a decision a real Sophie's choice here. Uh, I would say I would kill Martin Scorsese. I, 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 I love his films, but I definitely believe that Steven Spielberg's films were more impactful for me. So that's my choice. I'm sticking to it. And uh, let's get into our main event. So the year is 1982. The average income per year is about $21,000. Michael Jackson releases the Thriller album. Uh, Tylenol capsules are laced with potassium cyanide that kills seven people in Chicago. Disney opens up Epcot in Florida. The recession starts in the United States. And Argentina invades the Falkland Islands, all while the Whaling Commission decides that whaling, fishing should end now. It's also the year that Sophie... Made a choice. That's right. It's so a year Sophie's Choice.
1: Oh, Paul, I just want to say that collection of year facts was such a, like, low-high, low-high, high, <laughs> low, low-high, low-high. You really took me on a ride there. I know.
3: I'm trying to get better each week.
1: Sophie's Choice. It's got Meryl Streep as Sophie Zawatowski. It's got Kevin Klein as Nathan Lando, Peter McNichol as Stingo, Rita Karen as Jetta Zimmerman, and Gunther Maria Halmer as Rudolf Hess, a real-life person who was the longest-serving commandant of Auschwitz.
3: Now, what is this movie about?
1: Well you did not know last week what Sophie's choice was.
3: No, I here's the thing. I knew that a Sophie's choice was a hard choice. And I thought going into this film it was gonna be a straight up Holocaust drama. Like I thought I did know that she had to choose one of her kids.
1: Oh, you did know that. I was like hoping that would be like the biggest surprise for you—that no. you would think it was a love drama, because Sophie's Choice looks like a love triangle movie, where her choice is like, oh, do I stay with Kevin Klein, who's like magnetic and wild and right. charming, or do I stay with this like wishy-washy little writer boy who just mm. doesn't seem that interesting?
3: Well, first of all, he's got a lot of good things going for him. Um, <laughs> he's a great writer, uh, but no, I did know that. I didn't know the context of it, and when I first started watching it. I was like, oh, this isn't a World War II movie. Am I confused? And it really took me on a journey.
1: So Sophie's Choice is about a young boy who moves to New York. He wants to be a writer. Uh, he moves into this boarding house. And there's a couple upstairs, Meryl Streep and Kevin Klein, And they're in this passionate, tempestuous, romantic relationship. They're always either like doing it on a hammock or having screaming fights in the stairway. And he's storming out and saying he'll never come back together And Peter McNichol, the young Southern kid, Stingo, is just fascinated with this couple. And the more he gets to know them, the more Meryl Streep Sophie opens up about how she got to living in America in 1947, the really difficult steps that took her from Poland to Auschwitz to there, including this choice.
0: And
3: I would argue this movie, it it feels like in many respects you're watching a play. It's so small. It's so kind of contained in its emotionality that you could see this easily on stage, I believe.
1: I could see that. Yeah, the the structure would work really well on stage. You can picture Sophie in kind of the mock bedroom and then the lights darken and suddenly she's, you know, back in in Poland in the camps. That could totally work. I mean, it's...
3: I mean, I hope it does because I sunk a lot of money into it, Amy. I I mean, I hope that people want to go see it.
1: Are you going to be Sophie?
3: Yes. Is that a bad choice? (laughs)
1: I think it was an opera I think I have a dimmed belt
3: It was an opera actually And the whole thing, the entire film Is based on a book Which is ultimately based a little bit On a real life story I mean not totally real I don't think that Sophie's choice Is a part of it being real But the writer, uh, this guy William Styron He went to this kind of house in Brooklyn Lived there, made friends with this couple upstairs And this woman was a survivor And he connected with her on a level. And, you know, I I don't think that the Kevin Klein character was as intense as we see in the film. And obviously they didn't, you know, fall in love. But this is kind of the impetus for him to write this novel.
1: Wow. So you're saying it's autobiographical-ish? Because one of my favorite parts in this movie is when, you know, Stingo sits down with Sophie. He's telling her that he's writing a book and this scene happens.
2: I don't ask you about that work because, uh, you know, what it's about because I know that the writer, he likes to be quiet about his work.
4: It's about a boy, uh, a <laughs> 12 year old boy. Mm-hmm. And, uh,
2: yes, yeah, so it's uh, autobiographical.
4: You know, to a certain extent, maybe it is. Uh, it takes place in a year. Which is a year his mother dies. I didn't
2: know your mother died.
4: When I was 12.
2: You loved her very much.
4: I not, not enough.
2: What do you mean, not enough? What do you mean?
4: I mean, not enough.
1: I love that scene because all he has to say is, it's about a boy. And she's like, oh, it's autobiographical. I get how yeah. you are, you young writer types. And he's the slowest to catch on to it. And then she just can immediately jump from like, oh, so your mother died. I'm sorry about that. And he's like, Oh book, oh, yeah, yeah. And it just it seems to capture so much about just like writers and stories and yeah. everything. One of the things I really like about this is how intelligent Sophie is. She just cuts through everything.
3: Yeah, I feel like her character has been through a lot and seen a lot and dealt with a lot. So she is the most capable character in this entire Um, film, but is also the character that everyone wants to save in a way, too, which is interesting because she is the strongest. Overall, though, what do you think of this movie? Do you like this movie?
1: I mean, this movie is so like, capital O, capital F, old fashioned in just Mm -hmm. a good way. Like, this is just a good movie. Yeah. You know, I was rewatching clips of it Today, and my friend was like, do we still make movies like this? Does anybody make movies like this? And I was like, I think the guy from The Killing Speech thinks he makes movies like this. Right. You know, just like really classic, intelligent, smart. There's beautiful camera work in here. You know, it's just handsome and wonderfully acted. I yeah. think it's, a, I really did like this movie a lot. I mean, mainly for Meryl. I think Meryl's fantastic. But I will say when the movie started, I did actually have a minute of like, huh. Because it starts with this opening narration from him, from Stingo.
4: It was 1947, two years after the war, when I began my journey to what my father called the Sodom of the North, New York. Call me Stingo, which was the nickname I was known by in those days, if I was called anything at all. I had barely saved enough money to write my novel, for I wanted beyond hope or dreaming to be a writer. But my spirit had remained landlocked. Unacquainted with love and a stranger to death,
1: and I will admit, like in that very first opening yeah. bit, every single hair on the back of my arms just stood up, and I was like, "Oh, wait, no, I don't want a movie about like this incredible character created by Meryl Streep to be like framed for the experience of this really." kind of lame boy who wants to write right. a novel. I don't want her experiences with life and sex and death just to exist to like inspire him to write a great book about it, which is sort of what happened. And then I started to think about how he says call me Stingo. And I was like, oh, you're just straight up thinking that you're Moby Dick, you know, call me right. Ishmael. And then I realized maybe this film is sort of slightly more mocking about that character than I just assumed it was from the beginning. That it's a, where he's a little bit of a pretentious jerk who's maybe not the best writer. And then I started to think Sophie herself, her whole character is basically just only seen and buffeted around through the men around her. Like her father to her husband to the people in the camp. To Kevin Klein and to him. Like, she only exists in their view of her. And then it made sense that she doesn't even get to, like, take control of her story because she never gets to take control.
3: Well, I'd argue that in a way that she takes control of her story by controlling her story. She only shares her story with those that she wants to share it with. I don't believe that Kevin Klein knows her story. I don't believe that anyone really knows her story besides Stango. Now... What she gets out of her relationship with Kevin Klein is very different than what she gets out of her relationship with Stengel. But I feel like that character is strong because it's not looking for help. She's never really looking for help. Stengel inserts himself in their dynamic. And because of that, his relationship with her grows. I will say, just to talk about the beginning, I was nervous. When I see that music, which is Henry Mancini, beautiful score, over, like, just stark white letters on a black backdrop. I was like, oh, don't want to watch a Holocaust movie. No, no, no. And I'm starting to feel that fear. I'm like, am I going to be able to deal with this? I have children. Do I want to see this scene? And then when we cut into Stango, it was a relief. I was like, oh, am I wrong about this movie? And and I started to really enjoy this, like, kind of bizarro streetcar name desire that I that I found myself caught up in, you know, and— and one of the things that I was immediately drawn to, and I know Meryl Streep is amazing in this movie. I'm not taking anything away from Meryl Streep because I can talk about her performance in this for days. She's amazing. But what I was blown away by right out of the gate was Kevin Klein, who pops on the screen in this way. I'm like, whoa, holy cow. It's his first movie. And here, I want to play this moment in the film.
4: Please
2: don't go, don't go.
0: I need you. Yes, you Let can. me tell you something. I need you like a goddamn insufferable disease, like a name. I need you like a case of anthrax. Hear me? Like trichinosis. I need you like a biliary calculus, pellagra, encephalitis, Bright's disease. For Christ's sake, carcinoma of the brain. I need you like death. Hear me? No, no. Like death. No, no, no. Go back to Krakow, baby. <laughs> Back to Krakow! (laughs) Well, good evening. Did you have a good time? Did you enjoy our little show? Did you uh, get off on your little bit of eavesdropping? You just looked. my door was open. I just wondered what was going on. Your door was open. You wonder what was going on? Well, shut my mouth. If it isn't our new literary figure from the South. In that moment,
3: when he comes on, it's so dynamic, and I, I think I'm always amazed at actors who are able to be so engaging and so awful. Like you want to punch him in the face, but you also be like, can I watch more of this character? It's like he goes from he just does so much in that opening scene that you immediately put yourself into the position of Stango. It's like you're you're right there.
1: Well, yeah, there's this interesting arc to like Stango's relationship to Kevin Klein and to Meryl Streep, where he sees them for who they are right away. And then starting in the next encounter with them, he kind of falls in love with them. And it takes sort of the whole movie to get back to really seeing them for who they are and not this, like, idealized, beautiful, romantic, wonderful couple. And, you know, Kevin Klein, like, I think I forget how good Kevin Klein is because this is awful. Don't get mad at me. But, like, I get him confused with Greg Kinnear sometimes. Oh, no, no, no. i know, And I like Greg Kinnear, too,
3: but no, 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 no.
1: There's no reason for it. I don't know why. I don't know why. It's just one of those, like, mental blocks. And I didn't really realize, like... What being Kevin Klein meant in 1982, right. 1983, that he was being called the next Olivier because everyone like loved what he was doing on Broadway. He was in Pirates of Penzance mm. doing this kind of like Errol Flynn impersonation, which he's still sort of doing here in this mustache. Wait, here, let me play you a little bit of Pirates of Penzance. And he's doing basically a version of what he gets to do here in this film.
0: Oh, better far to live and die Under the brave black flag I fly Then play a sanctimonious part with a pirate head and a pirate heart. (laughs) Away to the cheating world go you, where pirates all are well to do. But I'll be true to the song I sing and live and die. King.
1: So yeah, like putting him in this is basically like taking the cast of Hamilton and being like, y'all can be in an Oscar movie. And it's being like, yeah, that's exactly what I want. Now,
3: I imagine that movie is shot after Sophie's Choice by uh, quite some time, right?
1: That's like a filmed version of what he was doing on Broadway on The Pirates of Penzance.
3: Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Okay. Because yeah, when I was watching this movie, I was like, well, this is kind of like Uh, the heavier version of his character Otto in A Fish Called Wanda. It's kind of this psychopath, intense, angry guy. And it's like, it's the character that I grew up with. I love Fish Called Wanda and- when I saw that, I was like, "Oh, this is the real life version <laughs> of that character." Like, uh, neither do you really want to be around, but this one you definitely don't want to yeah. be around. I mean, that I much. think in
1: a while, like at this moment, that's kind of just who Kevin Klein was. Right. I read this interview. I think this it was one angry, that he did at the time.
3: Sexual kind of guy, but
1: um, like crazy and always performing. Yes. I read this interview. I think it was with Rolling Stone and him in like 81, 82 and it was called something like, "Can Kevin Klein stop acting?" Because this guy <laughs> just hangs out with Kevin Klein for a day, and every time he Ask Kevin Klein anything. Kevin Klein just won't give him a straight answer. It, he just lies, and he's crazy, and he's grandiloquent, and he like makes puns, and he just talks around in circles, and it's just absolute gibberish and nonsense. Basically, like hanging out with him here, and it, it, it's kind of fun because it's like that. Kevin Klein is performing at being Kevin Klein, like actor who refuses to be understood, and this Kevin Klein here, Nathan Landau, is doing sort of like that. They're performing at being this like wonderfully giant romantic performance.
3: I, I love it, and there is a great kind of description of how he got to this level of performance. And this is uh, when he talks about working with the director, Alan J. Pacula. Uh, so take a listen.
0: I, the generosity of, of Alan who I remember him saying, look, whatever, uh, whatever I might have said before a take, if you get a different impulse during the scene, forget what I said. Mm-hmm. You must follow your impulses. So we're doing the scene with the champagne glass and I take this. P- Stuff, the, the pocket watch and I'd drop it in the champagne right, and smash right. it against the wall, because I was—he had given me such freedom, go crazy, just do, don't even worry about matching. I'll tell you when you have to match. But it was this, free, and the first, my first day of shooting, and he said, "We did five or six takes." He said, "I'm happy. I've got it. Are you happy? Do you want to? Do you want another one?" I, I, I get to, you're asking me. I thought, I thought the director said cut, and that was it. He was really. I think allowed in his first
3: performance in a film to to go there, and you know Meryl Streep talks about the fact that she told him like scare me, like go push me, and and that's why I feel like this performance it needs to be this level of anger and and sexuality and and, and everything because it is a melodrama and it it, it it needs to pop because Stango and uh, Sophie's characters are so kind of muted. You need this thing in the center to kind of just spin them around a little bit.
1: Yeah, I mean, Kevin Klein makes such an impact in that that scene that we just played, like him coming down the stairs and being like, back to Krakow, baby, that the next time you see him when he comes back late at night, all you see is his shadow in the doorway and you're like, oh, there he is. Like you recognize a dude from his shadow having only seen him for like a minute. And that's amazing. That should not happen so easily, but you're just obsessed with him from the get-go. I mean...
3: Especially someone who, at this time in 1982, no one knows who Kevin Kline is. Like, the general movie going... is his first movie. Like, and he comes in that hard. I think this movie is all about performances. Unfortunately, I think that, you know, another great performance, Peter McNichol, is probably a little bit overshadowed in the sense that he... Is doing something so small. They're all doing something so good, but they're all playing off each other. You know, they're not stealing the focus from each other in any way. And and Meryl Streep, obviously, the ringleader of the entire thing.
1: Yeah. I mean, I know that you love Peter McNichol because of Ghostbusters too.
3: By the way, I literally wrote down in my notes, Amy, no joke. I love Peter McNichols, GB2. Like, I literally, <laughs> I literally, you can look at my notes right here. You
1: call it GB?
3: Yeah, because I don't want to write down the whole Ghostbusters 2 while, while I'm taking notes.
1: So back to SC. Is that what we're going to do this? Anyways, <laughs> talk about SC. But yeah, I struggle a little bit more with Peter Nichols in this movie, not because I don't think he's great, not because I don't think he's great at all, mm-hmm. but just because I don't really like this character, Stingo.
3: You really don't like Stingo? I mean, I really don't what, like Stingo. What is there not to like of Stingo? I mean, he's a little bit of a, a spineless virgin.
1: A little bit of an incel. I'm realizing how many of our movies are structured around incels who are mad. Yeah. There's so many incel movies. I don't think I realize that we've just had, we've been talking about the problems with incels going back to the beginning. Yeah.
3: You need a character like Stengo, who is literally a blank canvas for these two to throw paint on. I mean, he is the audience. You know, he is as passive as we are. I think one of the best things in the film is... His narration. it's It's really beautifully written. and I, I feel like is that, him trying to be Tennessee Williams, or is that actually... I mean, you think that he's not a good writer. I, I left going, he is a good writer. Well,
1: I think that he's a self-serious writer. Okay. I mean, to say, call me Stingo, I'm like, okay. All right. To use okay. the most famous line in, in like, o- opening line in literature history as your beginning narration of this film. I'm like, okay, yeah. Stingo, I get who you think you are. <laughs> That's fine. It's probably, I've just dated a couple Stingos, so I'm like I a little, it. like, personally, like, touchy about a Stingo. And also because Stingo just seems sort of delusional throughout the movie that he can win Sophie. Mm -hmm. You know, to the end, like, I'm going to take you away. We're going to go to my farm. You're going to be with me. When it is so clear watching the film how much she loves Kevin Klein, how true and deeply and passionately and madly she is. Like, he might be... All over the place. He might yeah. be unpredictable. Her love for him is never in question. She's never even open to Stingo. She's never really even considering it. No. He's just kind of working in, d- doing the we're just friends card, like, worming in. Like, he makes me profoundly uncomfortable. Um And so when she finally, like, takes his V card, I'm like, oh, man, Stingo doesn't even deserve that.
3: Well, he does deserve to kind of get, I think open to the world. Like, she like. if there's anyone to do it, I hope it was Sophie. Because, you know, it was like she was going to take care of him, probably the better than that crazy uh, Upper East Sider that he was uh, having a fling with. Um, we
1: should play that because that scene, when that scene came on too, I was like, what is this movie? Let's play that. This is when Stingo meets a hot girl on the beach.
4: Nathan, my new and dear beloved friend, introduced me to what seemed the answer to my relentless all-consuming horniness.
2: Before I went into analysis, I was completely frigid. Can you imagine? Now all I can do is think about fucking. Wilhelm Reich has turned me into a nympho. I mean,
1: sex on the brain.
4: Her name still curls across my tongue.
1: I mean, there were just so many moments when I was like, Oh, this that's right. This pedigreed Oscar movie is also a little bit Revenge of the Nerds. And the it's- tagline even, the tagline is like... Between the innocent, the romantic, the sensual, and the unthinkable, there are some things we have yet to imagine. I mean, that, that tagline actually is not what I would have guessed uh, would be the yeah, tagline. Yeah, n- absolutely this film. not.
3: Well, that's what I'm saying. It's, like it's kind of a secret Holocaust movie because it's it's more of a mystery, it's this romance. And I would say that, you know, it to be lumped in as just being a Holocaust film, I think, does it a disservice because I think it does a lot of things very differently than most. Holocaust films. Oh, yeah.
1: I mean, talking about like the sixth sense of it all, I feel like you could have been an audience member in 1982 and watched Sophie's Choice just really assuming from the get-go that her choice is going to be about Kevin Kline versus Peter. And then in the last like 10 minutes of the movie being like, oh my God.
3: Yeah. Then you're like, whoa. I just want to say one thing before we lose the thread of this, uh, which is kind of this relationship between Stango, Kevin Kline's character, and Meryl Streep. Uh, Kevin Klein was talking to the writer and saying like, all right, so I get Peter McNichol is, is you, but who am I? You know, it's based on a a true story. Like, who am I? And, uh, you know, the writer just said, no, you're me too. And I thought that was an interesting thing. Like that kind of thing that, oh, that I think plays with, you know, masculinity, like, Am I this person who is this virgin who doesn't know anything and, and needs to kind of be guided by this woman, or am I this man who wants to choke somebody out on the neck and you know and, and start a fight every which way? It's an interesting, you know, dichotomy of like what the two types of, you know, stereotypical men are.
1: Yeah, and yet at the same time, I think Kevin Klein, his Nathan is also pretty sensitive. I believe so much in their love story. Like when they first fall in love. He takes her to I think what it's I think it's her house. I'm a little bit it's her house, right? Yes. She's living there first. He takes her to her house. That's right. Because then you see him start to soften it. You see like roses appear. You see him take kind of like her very poor place and make it a home for them. But there's that lovely moment where you know, and this is a couple that we first meet by the sounds of them having sex. Mm -hmm. When they first meet in their flashback, it's not like central, that's not like the driving force of it. It's that they bond over poetry. Like he takes down a book of Thomas Wolfe, her copy of it in Polish, and they read this poem together, like in Polish and in English. They're bonding over this work of art. And when I saw that scene, I was like, this is a real genuine, beautiful love affair. Like let's actually just play like a couple seconds of that. Stone,
4: a leaf, an unfound door. Of a stone,
2: only two, only a door, a door, you'll be shifty of myanic twa. And
4: of all the forgotten faces,
2: forgotten faces.
0: God, this is a first. <laughs> Hearing Thomas Wolfe read aloud in Polish.
2: Yeah, but first for me, too, hearing that uh,
1: Wolfe read in the um, English. <laughs> I mean, that's just so sweet. And you get to see her be flirtatious and charming and kind of be herself for really the first time that you've seen any, any of these American scenes where she's just been sick and near death.
3: Yeah, and I think that's what I really loved about this film is like, falling in love and, and, and feeling like you're in the room with these two people. It felt so intimate to me. And, you know, you talk about The Sixth Sense and, like, the twist in the last 10 minutes. There's also another twist in this movie that upsets the whole apple cart once again. Like, you know, I did not see the Kevin Klein twist coming at all. Uh, I was totally taken back by that. I was like, wait, I thought he might have been a drunk, you know, but not that he was uh, a schizophrenic janitor.
1: Yeah, I I didn't see it either. And then once they announce it, you're like, how did I not know that? Yeah. You know, because then you go back and it's just been there from the beginning. I mean, he's just been loud and large and over the top and unpredictable and everything suddenly makes sense. And you know, there's this really good visual metaphor that Paculo uses where right when Stingo gives in and starts being friends with them, you know, a couple of cute things happen. Like one, he watches them play piano together, yes, like Kevin Klein sort of playing a melody that she joins in and Stingo sticks his hand in and does a couple little tinkling keys at the end. this idea of all three of them.
3: oh, interesting. Creating. I saw that I saw that in a different way. Like I saw it as him puppeting her mm, like uh, not yeah. letting her be who she was because he had her at the piano. She wasn't playing, but his hands were playing for her and like he was a character that wouldn't let her ever really have her own voice he's like no I know what you are and I'm going to protect you because I couldn't fight in the war so I'm I'm doing my due diligence by being here and, and making sure you'll never be harmed again and then Stango I think kind of trying to Get in the middle of that. I, I definitely saw that, but I saw it more of a, I saw Stanglemore as an intrusion of this puppeteer who already has this situation kind of set up.
1: You know, that is interesting because I was kind of wondering something too. I wanted to bounce off of you. You know, the Meryl Streep that we meet in the modern scenes, you know, mm-hmm. beautiful, very feminine, feminine yes. dresses, feminine hair. She's dressed a lot differently than she was in Germany before the war, even. Yes. When she's with her dad, when she's working in his office, when she's talking to her secret lover in the resistance. That's not at all what she looks like. And it's almost as though I was wondering, did she make herself over to please what he would want her to look like?
3: I think that he made her over because when we see her in that room where she kind of passes out when they first kind of meet, she's not dressed like that at all. You know, I I think that he obviously, you know, got her back to being in good health and then bought her a dress and got her hair. You know what I'm saying? I think he's creating this image. Like he's – feeding it all, you know, and, and here's a character that, you know, he is coming from a point of view of feeling like he is not a man because he wasn't able to fight in the war, you know. I mean, uh,
1: he's sort of a makeover artist. He's like, it's yes. Southern Plantation Day. It's the Charleston Day.
3: Yes, absolutely. I mean, well, I mean, when he's dressed as Rep. Butler in that one scene, like that's when you, I mean, that's when the audience is also in on it that we know that he's kind of crazy and you're like, oh yeah, of course he's crazy. But when I thought about their relationship. I watched this interesting documentary on YouTube. I think when the DVD was released at one point, they did a bunch of different interviews. I wanted to talk about like what Kevin Kline's character gives Meryl Streep's character. She was coming from death
0: into life. And sex at the hands of Nathan was a life force in itself, and a life force which almost repudiated the memory of the death to which she had been exposed to so profoundly and consistently at Auschwitz and in Warsaw and other places. I thought that was interesting that that like that, that's
3: how that's the writer, uh, uh, how he kind of saw what he gave her. And it seemed like she was willing to play that part for her to kind of forget or to be okay with it.
1: Well, yeah. Well, I think she just plays so many parts in this movie when mm-hmm. you think about it. You know?
3: She, it is a mystery. We don't know this woman until the end. We think we know her. And we keep on revealing, revealing, revealing about her.
1: Yeah, but I'm not sure she knows herself, you know, because her father is somebody who defends the Nazis. Mm-hmm. You don't really get the sense she ever stood up to him or said no, no you know, and her, they say very clearly that her husband was one of her, his followers. So yeah, her I mean, husband was a disciple even. So like, he probably agreed too. So she didn't stand up to either of them. You know, she right. quietly was like, well, okay. And then she But do you
3: feel that she has to stand up to them? Like I mean, is that like I know that in our world you're like, Well, Nazis are bad, but in her world does she have an allegiance to the Jewish people? I mean, she doesn't have to. I mean Yeah,
1: no, I'm not blaming her for that. I'm not blaming for her for that at all. I'm just sort of saying what she thinks and what she does has been sort of controlled by who her dad is and who mm-hmm. her like male protector is. And then she's put in the camps and I mean, do you believe that she was in there because of stealing meat? Actually, wait, I want to play the scene where she says that she was there for stealing meat, mm-hmm. just because it's one of the details I love in her accent where she she not just does a good Polish accent, she does a person like who keeps stumbling over her own accent and trying mm-hmm. to like perfect it. And I love the way she says meat twice. But I think if I could get me a, so. If I could get that meat for my mother, I would make her
2: strong. So I go out to the country, and um, the peasants there, they're
1: selling ham. Uh, also, by the way, I love how you can see her character try to summon words. Right. You know, she'll sometimes, like, look up at the ceiling. She'll shake her head as though she's going to get the word out that way. She sort of will breathe like she's exasperated. Like, you really feel her learning English.
3: Yeah, I feel like it's a lie. I feel like that's the narrative that she tells. You know, um... And maybe she tells a different lie to different people. I don't know.
1: I don't know. But when she's in the camp, she keeps telling the Nazis in charge that she's not supposed to be there. And I think she really genuinely does believe that. Mm -hmm. I think she believes that she's not supposed to be there. You know, she's wearing um, the political prisoner red triangle badge with the P in it that says she's Polish. And, you know, when she says we're Christian, we're blonde, basically, like...
3: I agree with you. I don't think that she's trying to do some sort of, like, ruse or trick them. I I believe that she really does not believe she belongs there. And that's the truest moment that we see of her there. I mean, because every other version of it is unreliable narrator. We don't know. We don't know until the very end, like, that scene definitely happened.
1: What I think is interesting about her so much is, like, A, I don't think we get to see movies about people affected by the Holocaust who weren't just like I was a clear-cut good person put mm-hmm. in this camp and I'm not saying she's a bad person at all at no. all you know what I mean my god it's like 2018 in America i think all the time about like what's the line when we're like collaborators right but there's this one scene in that whole sequence where she kind of faints in front of one of the nazi officers and the camera goes to her eyes on the ground and you realize her eyes are open and you kind of get that sense of oh she faked that faint you know mm. and i don't blame her at all for faking that faint but you know she is Figuring out how to use her beauty, because every single man who talks to her tells her how beautiful she is right at the beginning, to her advantage, which she absolutely should be. But it makes me think that when she faints and she meets Kevin Klein, I think she's faking it.
3: Interesting. I mean, this is a woman who you're saying knows how to get people to help her.
1: Exactly. And I think that's really interesting about her. She's a woman who it's not really on the table that she will ever be in control of her own life but she can maybe steer who is in control of her life.
3: I like that. I I, I like that idea. And I definitely believe that here's a person who men always want to take care of her, but they don't realize that she is. She doesn't need it. And that's an interesting character to play because she plays so low status the entire film. You never really see that energy. You have to kind of unpack it like this to be like, oh.
1: Because like initially when some people first meet her, they think she's – They treat her like she's a dumb immigrant, kind of. Right. I mean, you get the sense that, like, the teacher in her English class is also in love with her. Like, adding to the list of of men who, like, would notice that she's feeling a little delicate. Really, one of the only people you see be cruel to her besides an actual Nazi is when she goes to the library and she's looking for this poem that means a lot to her. In fact, let's play a tiny bit of that scene because it's also, I think, a good example of her accent here in this scene, learning English, is so much different than even what it'll later be. Mm. And what she does in this performance in this scene I really love because, like, you can even hear her frustration come through speaking a language that isn't hers, you know? I, I just, I, I just, I can't emphasize enough, like, how miraculous Meryl's performance is that it's not just mimicking the sound of a voice, but it's doing an acting performance inside doing the sound of that voice. Yes. And letting her irritation slip through. What,
2: then? Um... Where would be that
1: listing
2: in the catalog file for... Mm, 19th century american poet Emil dickens please
0: in the catalog room on the left but you won't find any such listing
2: oh i won't find that listing why wouldn't i find it
4: charles dickens is an english writer There is no American poet by the name of Dickens.
2: I'm sorry, no, that is, I'm sure, American poet. I mean
1: Dickens.
4: Listen.
1: D-I- I I told you.
0: There's
4: no such person. You want me to draw
3: you a picture?
1: Also, how would he draw a picture, by the way, of the lack of a person?
3: Yeah. I want to know what that is. (laughs) And I, I just feel like what you just said about her accent and this It was really interesting to hear how she approached the accent, because it kind of exactly underlines what you're saying.
2: I didn't really think about getting an accent, but I really wanted to speak Polish, and I thought if I learned to speak Polish, then the diphthongs and the sounds of that language would be in my mouth, sort of, and... um, So I I just went to uh, Berlitz and got a teacher.
4: But you didn't know that you were going to have to be speaking German, because that was originally written in English, and Alan was terrified to approach you and say, oh, by the way, while you're shooting the rest of this movie, do you mind learning German? Yeah. And you had to learn German and just... But that's
2: a more familiar sound to our ear. Yeah. You know, uh, Polish uh, is
4: not so... But speaking German in a Polish accent
2: Well, I think I just, that was serendipity. I just, you know, had the Polish accent, so everything Everything sounded Polish. Polish. In fact, my little son used to say to me when I would come home at night, he'd say, no Polish.
1: (laughs) I I mean, you're an actor. Can you do a Polish accent?
3: Absolutely not. I mean, but I didn't also go to Berlitz. I'm sure I could if I did. Do you want Uh, to learn?
1: Because I found out how to do a Polish accent clip.
3: Really? (laughs) All right, let's see. But I, but I, I do find that to be pretty amazing. And what we're seeing, it's sort of like... I don't know, like watching Steph Curry play basketball, it seems so effortless that you forget how good it is. Like uh, she's doing an accent, doing another language, and then bringing that back into, like she's doing three different things here flawlessly. And you don't, I guess in my opinion in watching it, I'm not even noticing it. I, it, it feels flawless to me. And to think it's a German language through a Polish accent. It's like, oh, wow, she is just doing so much and doing the most important thing, being emotional and connecting to the character because I'm connecting to what's happening in the scene. I'm not thinking about accents or anything like that.
1: Yeah, I mean, it makes me think, I don't know if this is a weird analogy, but it makes me think of like cooking. Mm. Like you learn how to make a quesadilla. Yeah. And then you learn how to make- One of the
3: hardest things to make.
1: A bulgogi quesadilla. So it's like a Korean quesadilla. You know, and you just start like, Taking one thing that you learn and then adding a second thing yes. in and creating this like new recipe.
3: She really leads with this emotional core. So where a lot of other performers are known for being the greatest actors and they do all this, you always are, are seeing the acting and I feel like. There's a level to her where you you don't really feel the acting. It just feels like that's the character. And I guess that's why Meryl Streep is so great. That's why she's been nominated so many times. And it feels dumb for me to say this out loud. But I think that's the difference. She seems so emotionally connected at every given place. Where I think Peter McNichol and Kevin Kline, who are wonderful in this film, there's a lot more performance going on.
1: Yeah. Well, you know who inspired Meryl to become an actress? Who? Robert De Niro in Taxi Driver. When she saw Taxi Driver, she was like, you know what? That is the kind of actor I want to be when I grow up. And so, you know, there's another – I will chalk that up for Taxi Driver's existence. Thank you, Taxi Driver, for that.
3: And then she goes to school and is taught by Gene Arthur – who is in uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, who plays Saunders? Uh, interesting little connection there. We're all driving it. it back, people. It's I know. all coming together. But
1: all these influences are just adding up, you know. And actually, I think of Meryl as the accent actress because when I was growing up, it was like, oh, accents, Meryl. It was just the oh, thing you always joked I didn't, about.
3: I never really knew that about her.
1: Oh, really? Yeah. For some reason, it was like the number one thing I knew. It was like, Meryl Streep, if it's an accent, she's like, let me at it. Oh, wow. And, and, I didn't realize that this was actually the first time that she had done a big accent in a movie. She had done little ones, like right. little versions of American ones. I'm am Italian.
3: The, oh, hey, like that. Like little, like little tiny ox.
1: Yeah, that's. is that how Italian? say? <laughs> hey, I'm Italian. Oh, hey. Oh, me the big mushroom, wow. I'm scared. I'd like to apologize to any Italian listening to this show.
3: <laughs> I am Italian, so I can do my Italian accent. Oh, you're Italian? I, I am. didn't know that. I am.
1: Wow, congratulations. Thank you. But yeah, you know she'd done like Deer Hunter before this, and yes. then Kramer made her like a giant superstar. I haven't seen
3: either of those films.
1: Well, I think we're gonna have to. Yeah, I guess. We'll All have right. To. But so when she does this magazine, she was suddenly like this hit actress. It was like Jennifer Lawrence, you know, had like exploded wow. on the screen. Yeah. She said in this year, she was like, in the early '80s, for a while, there was either me or the Ayatollah on the cover of national magazines. <laughs> she wasn't happy about it. She called it right. excessive hype.
3: Well, it's like, Meryl Streep. I watched a bunch of interviews uh, of her like, when she was promoting this movie, and she was pregnant. And there's, like, one interview where it seems like it's in her house, and she's got a blanket, like, over her lap. And it just – she's, you know, she's, like, the 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 ultimate example of, you know, someone who doesn't want the fame just wants to do the work. And, and, and it was interesting to see, even back in 1982, the same way. You know, she's just very – you could see that she has a little level of uncomfortability with doing the press.
1: Yeah, like, I really recommend, by the way – Former guest on the show, Karina Longworth, mm-hmm. she wrote a really great book about Meryl Streep. Oh, really? Oh, it's terrific. It's absolutely terrific. I can't recommend it enough, but she goes over a little bit of Meryl's biography, and she talks about how when Meryl first got interested in movies, she was doing what Spielberg did. She was directing home movies. She wasn't trying to act in front of them. Oh, wow. Yeah, she's trying to like, direct her younger brothers in them. And then when she was 12, uh, she did a little bit of singing, and her parents were like, oh, my God, you're a great singer. So they put her in opera lessons, which I wonder if that's how she got to be... Good at trying to channel emotions in yeah. in different languages, because I mean, from everything I've heard about opera singers, you know you have to sing in you Italian, have so you have much. to figure out what right. it means. But then, and this is what I thought was really interesting, because I feel like this connects to Sophie a lot. She was kind of this nerdy kid, you know. Mm-hmm. She calls herself like gawky, frizzy hair, glasses, the whole thing. And then she decided she wanted to perform at being popular. So she gave herself this makeover in high school, and she turned into a blonde, and she decided she was going to perform at being a dumb blonde cheerleader who was friendly, deferential to boys, and it absolutely worked. Wow. And so she called that her very first performance.
3: Now, to think, she almost didn't get this part. I mean, this is not a part that they wanted her to play. Basically, the writer of the novel wanted it to be Ursula Andress, a Bond girl Famous Bond girl. But then the director wanted it to be this other woman. Her name was Liv Johan Olmen, who was basically this Norwegian actress who was the muse of Ingmar Bergman and probably most notably known for uh, scenes from a marriage. It's interesting. So Meryl Streep, you know, had gotten a copy of the script like under the table, like she wasn't supposed to get it, and went to Alan J. Pacula and was like, (gasps) I, you have to put me in. You have to like basically like begged him to to do this part. He didn't think that she had the thing that would make you feel connected to her. Like he wanted a sexy European woman. He and didn't I think, think
1: she was hot enough. Can we just say that he didn't? Yeah. He didn't think she projected sensuality.
3: And by the way, what I love about this is how you can act it. You can be. I mean, Meryl Streep is gorgeous, and I'm not saying, but like. You know I think when you think about Ursula Andrus, that's a bond girl. like that's a different level of sexuality than Meryl Streep and but Meryl Streep can I mean she like when you see her she is just like effervescently just the most gorgeous woman you've ever seen as Sophie in present day, which is nineteen forty
1: yeah, I mean, it feels weird talking about like actresses and her looks, but I had this moment where I was trying to imagine if it was a different type of beauty mm-hmm. you yeah, because I think Meryl Streep in this movie is like this luminous. Radiant, like you're drawn to her, a kind of mm-hmm. light bulb sort of beauty. But I was like, what if it was? And this is this is not like at all a diss on her, but like somebody who I think is just absolutely beautiful, but in kind of a boring way. Jessica Beale. Yeah. Okay. I was like, if it was a Jessica Beale type beauty, I think the character would be really different because like Jessica Beale yeah. walks in a room and everybody's like, yeah, hoba hubba. But Meryl, it feels like it's kind of selective. Like you you appreciate a person. It's like. Uh,
3: but no, yeah. look, look. I I'm only reacting negatively because. She is my understudy, and the Amundsen version of this that I'm doing next week. So oh, I hope so I don't get sick. Okay, I, sorry hope I about don't that. get sick. No, uh, no, I hear what you're saying, and I, that's the issue with, I mean, casting all along the board. I think that you can see that. Same goes for dudes. There's been so many dudes that are so like. Who is that guy? Yeah, he's in that movie and he looks no different than this other person. But with a person that kind of pops, at least with like a, a male leading man, is when you have somebody like a Chris Pratt who has like a personality attached behind uh, good looks.
1: It, I mean, it is always so hard to try to talk about like the weird blend of like how looks affect a performance, you know? And
3: you need it for this part. Like this part, you need you need her to look like this Sophie
1: yeah, but it's also, I mean, I can't imagine what it's like to be Meryl Streep and have articles written about you. Like, I saw one written about her around this exact time, quote, her unusual looks give her the flexibility to play anything from a hag to a beauty, and she is aware of this. Ugh. Or also, she would tell this story over and over again about how before she was even in any movies, before people knew who she yeah. was, when she was just a very serious and very good actress, she auditioned for the Faye Ray role in King Kong, Oh wow. made King yeah. Kong. She's auditioning for it in Dino De Laurentiis, the producer. He starts to yell at his son, an Italian this is so ugly. Why did you bring me this? Referring to her. Oh, Jesus Christ. And she understands Italian. So she just said back, like, this is what you get.
3: But there is something about her look. And when you put that last image of the film is like a gauzy image of Sophie. You know, and you're, you're looking at her. I think just this image of this beautiful woman that hides this, like her life is, so in shambles. I I love that idea that like the exterior looks beautiful but the interior is a mess. It's it's like a Hollywood facade, you know, and it's like and I think that like that's why that last image of the movie hangs with you. It's like I've seen many movies where the character dies, spoiler alert, sorry. But here when you reflect on her face and you kind of just see the way that she looks not sad, beautiful, at her most beautiful and refined, you all of a sudden in that last moment Feel all the sadness of her life, and I think that that's one of the most gut-wrenching moments of the movie, is because you finally see her.
1: Yeah, and there's something about you know you calling it a spoiler alert that she dies. This movie is really interesting in that she tells you basically what's going to happen to herself the whole time. I mean, one of the first things that she says is she says, "Please forgive us," you know, and this is a movie about a person who can't forgive herself for Mm -hmm. something that. She did, you know, and she just sets up this kind of story of forgiveness right away. And then when she's in the library and she faints and she's like rescued by Nathan, you know, the very first thing she says to him is, I think I'm going to die. Mm. And just all the way along, it's being laced through. But, you know, one last thing on beauty. I'll just get to it now because it makes perfect sense. Pauline Kill hated this film. Oh, wow. Hated to pieces. She called it an infuriatingly bad movie. Mm. And in her review, she really just went after
3: Meryl Streep. Wow. See, like, I always felt like Pauline Kael gets it or got it. And it's interesting that she sometimes really reacts incredibly negatively to things that are so embraced by popular culture.
1: Yeah. I mean, here's what she said. She said, Streep is very beautiful at times, and she does amusing, nervous bits of business, like fidgeting with a furry boa, her feathers twiddling with our heartstrings. She has, as usual, put thought and effort into her work. But something about her puzzles me. After I've seen her in a movie, I can't visualize her from the neck down. Is it possible that as an actress she makes herself into a blink and then focuses all her attention on only one thing? The toss of her head, for example, in Manhattan, her accent here. She says that Meryl Streep's characters don't seem to be full characters. There's no joys to be had from her, in that in her zeal to be an honest actress, she allows nothing to escape from her conception of a performance. And so she just found her so overly like mannered. It sounds like so controlled yeah. in what she was trying to channel that she just never saw any interior life to her. The way that I feel like I see interior life. To know, so clearly,
3: her. she never saw Mamma Mia. I mean, uh,
1: she never but, did because she died.
3: I X-ball. know. That's what I'm saying. It's wow. a real bummer. No, but it's interesting to to see that because what you've just told me about her. She does make deliberate choices. She is saying, I choose to be popular. I am going to act this way. So maybe Pauline Kael is seeing something that she doesn't connect with.
1: Yeah, well, you just absolutely nailed it. Because here's what Meryl said in response to that review. Uh She said, I'm incapable of not thinking about what Pauline wrote. It really did affect her. It hurt her a lot. And she said, and you know what I think? That Pauline was a poor Jewish girl who was at Berkeley with all these rich Pasadena wasps with long blonde hair. And the heartlessness of them got to her. And then years later, she sees me. So it's like she thought that Pauline saw the image she had created for herself and just had no sympathy for this homecoming queen creation that she had made. And in a way, like the person Meryl turned herself into was why Pauline just hated her on sight.
0: And
3: do you see what just happened there? Meryl Streep just pulled a Sophie on Pauline kale like the way Estango said it's a story about uh, a young boy, and she's like, it's about you. Boom, she is nailing it. People, you heard Conan O'Brien on this show just a few weeks ago talking about the Marx Brothers, and he is coming to Earwolf with his brand new podcast, Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend. On the show, Conan hangs out with Some of his favorite people. People like Will Ferrell. Uh, That episode is actually great. I love Will Ferrell. And you get to see him in a really calm, relaxed manner. It's a very casual conversation, not kind of forced into those five-minute chunks that you have to do when you're on a talk show. Conan is so engaging. As you heard him here on Unspooled, he really is going deep with these guests and talking to amazing people like Wanda Sykes and Nick Offerman and Kristen Bell. Plus, he also answers all the questions that callers are dying to know, like the secret to Conan's hair and his favorite Star Wars prequel. I'm sure he's going to call that person a nerd. Um, Here's the thing, people. You got to check out Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend. If you're a fan of The Conan O'Brien Show, if you just like really great interviews, you will not let you down. The first episode with Will Ferrell is up right now in your favorite podcast app. Subscribe so you don't miss an episode. So, Amy, we're talking a lot about accents in this movie and how amazing Meryl Streep's accent is. Um, and I thought it would be really interesting to bring in someone that I've worked with in the past. Her name is Samara Bay. She is an accent, a dialect coach, uh, and she's really fantastic. And welcome, Samara. So let's introduce you to our audience. Tell us some of the projects that you have worked on.
5: Well, thank you. Hello. (laughs) Hello. I'm thrilled to be here. (laughs) Um, Some of the stuff that's been really fun the last few years, I got to coach the movie Loving with uh, Bruce Nega and Joel Edgerton, Uh, American Crime Story Versace. So I got to work with all three of the uh, actors doing uh, Italian accents who are all from Spanish, different Spanish speaking cultures. Um, And most recently I got to work with Gal Gadot on Wonder Woman. And then I also do a bunch of uh, like TV things here and there. So
3: are you on set with these people all the time or are you just doing? Classes, or d- does it depend?
5: Every project is different, really based on, on the needs of the right. role uh, and the actor. But um, what's really fun is when I get to do a little bit of prep ahead of time where we have some, you know, we've carved out quiet time where it's just us. We get to work through the meaty text stuff and all the questions and all the discomfort that might come up of doing something that's, you know, feels alien.
3: So we worked together on a movie. And it was an amazing experience because I would never had done an accent before. What I realized in working with you was it's just not, like, doing vocal exercises. It's also about kind of creating a performance on top of that. Like, you're working kind of in tandem.
5: There's vowels and consonants, right? Mm -hmm. And we are in the realm of, like thinking about protecting, uh, considering turning over vowels and consonants. But if we were just doing vowels and consonants, we would have no value to the stories that are being told. right. And so what my job is as a dialect coach is to do that work that's quote unquote technical work on the vowels and consonants and the inflections of, of various you know regional accents around the world. And then the really interesting part is getting that into the mouth, of a real human being who's playing a real human being right. with real text that they already are having to, you know, look at on a page thoughts that other people wrote and turn into their own thoughts. Because that's really what we're watching when we're watching people.
3: And you can't just have words devoid of emotion no. either. You I have mean, to- I
5: literally have people ask me, especially, you know, I work with Americans to sound foreign and foreigners to sound American. Right. And so when I have foreigners, especially for whom English is not their first language, they'll often ask me things like, I've noticed the T. The, the, the the end of the word what right sometimes they pronounce it sometimes they don't they meaning you know americans and and obviously they've been they've been listening and i'm like yay good job listening the answer is depends on what your intention is (laughs) and they're like what we uh humans aren't necessarily thinking we americans certainly are not necessarily thinking i'm going to put a t at the end of my word what we will leave that sound off we'll say what if yeah. it's like a kind of a throwaway moment. Yeah. And then maybe if we've had to ask it five times because somebody continues to, you know, look at us weirdly, we'll add that to on what?
3: Well, that brings me to someone like Meryl Streep. So we watched Sophie's Choice. I know you saw it as well. She is speaking English. She is Polish. And at a certain point, she's speaking German. Like, and they're and all- And she's American. And she's, yeah. So, and she's American. If I came to you with that- <laughs> kind of a role. How would you even approach it? Would you take each language and kind of teach each one, or would you kind of layer one on top of the other?
5: It's a, it's definitely a layering thing. It's definitely a real human being you'd have to think through. Right. And you know, in my, in my favorite projects, I get to do this with the director and the actor and we get to have sort of, you know, a creative mind meld where we're like, what is the story we're trying to tell? Right. Because we don't think about dialect in Hollywood. We don't think about dialect as a design element, like we think about costume, right, hair and makeup, but it is because we are helping tell the story. You know, we all know if somebody is supposed to come across as like a really street smart, but uneducated New Yorker, and instead they have this like patrician Upper West Side sound, it, it just confuses the audience. So in the same way, now we have this. We have to live through, you know, what is this woman's life? She was born and raised here. Her dad was like this, so so he probably taught her to be. You know, she's supposed to be able to speak a number of languages. Right. There was a perfectionism streak. There's this German element, right. and then there's also how long she's lived in the U.S. What her like? I mean, if we're gonna want to get really yeah. delightfully psychological, what the sort of like uh, uh, blocks of trauma are? Right. Um. The things that the only and moment, it's period
3: too. So you're dealing with all of oh, this. For sure. I'd also imagine that you get to see actors in a really vulnerable state. That's the way mm. I felt with you because you are opening yourself to basically fail and, and more than you would open yourself to fail if you were in front of the camera because at least in front of the camera, you know, I'm going to do this. I may have adjustments, but the first time you're trying on something and you're walking down this path, like you get to see somebody in this young state of a performance. And, and it, you know and yeah. I like
5: to say that in, among the stereotypes of yeah. actors in Hollywood, God bless, yeah. rarely one will use the word perfectionist, but right. everyone I know is. And what I am asking them to do is be imperfect too soon. Mm. You know, to right. share with me the very beginning part of their process. Often if it's for an audition or even for if it's for a, a role and they've already booked it, they, the sides, the material is just like they've barely read it. Right. And we start the process together of all the things that are on the page. And, and if it's an actor who, you know, like you, who's really open to sort of the holistic approach. Right. Uh, you know, yay, it's all fair game.
3: Well, then my question to you is, how are you so versed on so many dialects? Did you get an ear for this or are you kind of learning alongside your actors as you're it's doing It's a great
5: question. Uh, both. Mm-hmm. Um, there are certainly dialects that come up all the time. I mean, Southern accents, New York accents. There's been a lot of Boston movies lately. A lot of lately. Boston, yeah. I, and then, you know, out of the blue, I did a Burmese accent for an episode of How to Get Away with Murder oh, wow. a few weeks ago. And it was like, well, uh, better learn that. I definitely, uh, I have an MFA in acting. So I started out with a sort of conservatory experience. Anybody who, go, who goes through that is doing a little, you know, Shakespeare, a little yoga, a little stage right. combat, a little speech. <laughs> and my speech class was the one where... Where, you know, in general, I see actors get kind of glazy-eyed when you start looking right. at these symbols, the International Phonetic Alphabet, yeah. which is our, our uh, you know, the most technical side of what I do. Uh, and I was always the one who would kind of perk up.
3: I remember doing exercises like that, and it was a frustrating exercise, that phonetic, yeah. I
5: mean, there's a there's absolutely a hurdle for any of us, myself included, right. when you first see the International Phonetic Alphabet. It's a bunch of symbols. Some of them look like regular letters in the alphabet, but, you know, don't be mistaken because they're actually, <laughs> it's a trap, or some of them look like um, literally Greek symbols, yeah. and uh, and and at first, for an actor who usually, you know, stereotypically is not um, a math and science person, they'll look at it and it will look like math, and they'll say, "Oh my god, get me out of this room." Yeah. And then at a certain point, for certain actors like myself, it suddenly looks like a secret code, and then I can just listen to anybody's accent and go, "Oh, that's so funny. This seems to be this seems to be a, a pattern." Every time the a- apple sound comes up, c- comes up, excuse me, they turn it to. Yeah, so at becomes at right. Oh, okay. That seems pretty consistent. Okay. Interesting. So you write that down and then you end up with a list of like, I don't know, depending on how complicated the accent is, five to 10 to 20 pretty consistent rules. And then you start to think, ah, oh, okay, so maybe English isn't their first language and it's, let's say, I don't know, whatever, Italian, Spanish. And you go, okay, well, that makes sense because they only have five vowel sounds. So every time they get to one of our American vowel sounds that doesn't exist in Spanish, yeah. they're subbing in this one. Okay, well, that's okay, that makes sense. So there starts to be kind of an inherent logic.
3: Because you have experience on both sides of it, you know, uh, teaching and acting. Is there an element to it that kind of creates a different level of performance because you are so – attuned to what you're saying and how you're saying it do allow yourself to be open for improvisation that's something that you know i think is a a, a tricky thing because you want to make sure you're getting it right so you don't feel like you have as much yeah
5: i have had so many actors over the years ask me if they should be speaking in the dialect when they're not on set or they're not on yeah you know camera and uh and I always say this very, like, wishy-washy thing about how it's up to them. It's it's such a personal choice. I don't want to, uh, you know. Yeah. And it's true. I mean, I say that because I don't want to be domineering. But uh, if somebody were to ask which is more effective, right. obviously the more you do it, the more – Right, the more it, it it does become that embodied thing that we were talking about with Meryl. Right, you know, I mean, the, what we what we like the most probably about Meryl's dialect use is, you know, yeah, the sounds. But when she started, and I'm sure some of this is the script, and some of this was her own dance with the script. But when she left out words or mispronounced right. things, and that is the kind of freedom, and quite honestly, even in the context of a Holocaust story, fun right. you can have with with a playing a person that isn't you.
3: Did you say that you actually have a little bit of like a story about the person who helped Merrill with yes. this? Yes, I would love to hear. What a tiny
5: world, right? Yeah. There's this amazing woman who uh, runs the arts division at UC Santa Cruz. Mm-hmm. Happens to be the town I was born and raised in, okay. and my parents are still there, so they've been slugs, her. right? She's awesome. Slugs, slugs. Good yeah. job. So I've met Susan Salt a few times, and before she was at UC Santa Cruz, she was at CalArts. Before that, she was at Miramax, where she was the oh, wow. senior vice president of production. Wow. And before that, her very first job, before she'd even graduated from college, I believe, is she was a intern for the director of Sophie's Choice. Wow. An assistant. Yes. And she knew a little Polish. Whoa. And so they literally said, oh, could you help out Meryl?
3: What a crazy job to get. Like you're basically like a PA, you're making like no money an hour, and then you're sitting against Meryl Streep. I mean teaching her
5: Polish. Early Meryl Streep. Early so Meryl you know, Streep, yeah. you're not that, that part maybe was less, yeah, well, I less mean, intimidating, but Wow. And also a fascinating I mean, this is not the point for anybody else, but for me, what a fascinating thing that in nineteen eighty two that is how dialect work was done.
3: Right. I mean, when you look at somebody like Daniel Day-Lewis and they're doing a voice for a character where there's no recordings of that time. How do you approach that, or do you just kind of hope, guess, or say who? who? Yeah,
5: that's exactly right. I did. <laughs> um, I did something uh, that was like an 1850s Appalachian Georgian accent, right. Um, people say Appalachia, but I've right. been told it's Appalachia, but now I'm self Now I want to say, yeah. that's it, whatever you want it to be. <laughs> um, it's, it's a original it's uh, choice. I love stylish. it. I love it. Um, but anyway, uh, 1850s. So again, yeah. no recording equipment that I know of, um, or certainly no recording that made its way to me. Right. Uh, I talked to another coach who had done a different project in that same era, and she sent me some really cool recordings of some people in the Ozarks. But also, you just make choices. Right. You have I mean, to kind of
3: make an educated guess. I have right? to
5: say, that's exactly right. Educated guess, meets uh not to use the S word again, but storytelling. Right. Right? What what spirit do we want this character to have?
0: I and does that.
5: it feel you know, I remember this this 1850s project, the actress was British, so already she was gonna have to do some dialect work to sound American. Yeah. And then we found uh she's very she's meant to be very um like of the earth, living in nature, anachronistic, uh far away from everybody. And we found that when she When she worked her way into the accent in a certain way, it had more of a legato quality and in certain way, more of a staccato quality and that she could use the legato for the more like flirtatious scenes and the legato for more of the moments where she's trying to be a take me seriously, assertive woman.
3: This has been so lovely talking to you. Thank you for sharing your knowledge about this field, because I think you actually demystified some of this that I think we all know about. We hear a lot about this work, but we don't actually get to hear from the people who are – implanting it in our in our vocal box. Well,
5: and I also want to say to your listeners, yeah. you know, I, we talked about how there's the technical stuff and then how it's really more about the other stuff. It's about how do you make words from a page come out of your mouth like yeah. you believe them. And also maybe some of your own baggage that comes up around that. And the, although that first one is not relevant for people who aren't actors, yeah. the other two really are. And so I've been beginning to work with uh, particularly... F- female progressive politicians who are maybe first time candidates. And also I've worked with scientists and I've worked with some people in the tech world and like, what's crazy is it's all the same stuff, you know, how we lift words from a page and, and, and communicate thoughts to land on an audience and change their hearts and minds. This is yeah. This is like what we do. What we all should keep yeah. doing, and find people to help us do it better. Well, you are
3: helping people communicate, whether it's through fiction or through you know people's own words. It's, it's it's giving them those tools to effectively communicate.
5: Yeah, and really, we all know how to do that in private with the people we love, right? And often the question is, how do we translate that into a more public or right. a more uncomfortable sphere? And I'm here to say, you can do it. <laughs>
3: Um, quick question, Amy. Did Meryl make the right choice?
1: With, with getting rid of the daughter? <laughs> I'm not a parent, man. You tell me.
3: <laughs> no, I mean, this is arguably one of the most, like, it's not a choice. You know, like, clearly, like, this Nazi officer is. You know, for lack of a better term, fucking with her, like he—he's torturing her, and even to put someone in that moment, uh, whether it's a you know thirty seconds or five seconds, it will feel like a lifetime. Like to ever think about that, and and of course I'm someone who has two children, so of course I thought, what would that be like? And it shook me to my core to even think to be in a mo- to be in a moment. How could you even? Do that, you know. I think my wife and I talk about the idea that you know we would jettison one of uh, ourselves or or each other over our children. I mean, you know, and I think we both feel that way. It's like, yeah, In no, no, no. Titanic
1: no. lifeboat, if it came to that. Yeah,
3: I wouldn't. You know, it, I would just boom. See you later. I wouldn't shoot anybody. It's an interesting choice, and I think it's such a, it's kind of beautifully played. And I didn't realize. That when she scream, when they take that daughter out of her hands, and th- this whole scene, there's a lot of lore about this scene. You know, whether it's Meryl Streep saying, I never read that scene until the day that we did it after I read it the first time, whether it's the daughter who is in her arms going, That was my real reaction. I was there, we did it once, we got it. And then someone else saying, No, no, we did it like 12 times. You know, it, but then even Meryl Streep going, That scream. You know, there's a moment where she screams in in, in agony, and she knows that her children are being pulled away from her. It. it makes me emotional even thinking about it. Yeah, the, but you
1: hear the daughter scream, and she's quiet.
3: And she's quiet, but she's screaming.
1: Yeah, she's screaming, but you hear the daughter.
3: And I thought that was like a sound design choice. They pulled out her scream, but no. Like Meryl Streep was like, she didn't realize that no words were, no sound was coming out of her voice. She she reached this emotional place where she couldn't even get that there. And I thought that was so interesting and she talked about you know people always ask her about that scene and say like you know what you know it must have been so hard and she's like that's the scene that's not hard to shoot because here you are in this you know this situation you're in these clothes you're you're surrounded by these people you are you're in that moment and you just react naturally she said those scenes are the easiest scenes to shoot because it's all kind of in front of you you know when it's you know, and I, I I understood what she was saying on that. It, there's a lot in that scene. It's a very it's a relatively short scene, and as the audience, we don't live with the the ramifications of that scene for more than ten minutes. You know, so it's not something that it's not like life is beautiful, where you know that it's constantly under this idea of like what's going to happen to this family. What you know, it, it it's kind of dumped on you, and then we're we're kind of out, and we have to deal with her. It, it also just speaks to how such a small scene can have such a A gigantic effect on popular culture.
1: Yeah, it reminded me a little bit of. Do you remember when we had Dale Dye come in for a platoon? Yes. And he was talking about, can you imagine walking on that battlefield? How he would train recruits. He's like, you're Mm -hmm. walking on the battlefield, you come under attack, um, your best friend, the guy that you've known your entire life, right next to you gets shot. How do you feel? Yeah, and he was saying that everybody in the in um, all the young recruits that he was trying to train on how to think like a soldier would say like you feel sad, you feel grief, you feel shock, you feel scared, and he was like, no, you feel lucky that you're still alive, and that momentary impulse to just be grateful that it was yeah. it wasn't you, that guilt haunts you then for the rest and of your life, it. and that feels like exactly what happens in this scene here,
3: one hundred percent. I mean, it that's her life. It, everything is seen through that. Like you, it's it is like the sixth sense in the sense that you can watch it again knowing it and and you know and i feel like you've watched it again knowing it like you get do you see more
1: well now i'm thinking like that makes it more clear that when she's say dressing up like scarlett o'hara or giggling or just doing anything to be with a man who keeps her distracted mm. that is a performance she's not like an innocent right cheerful blonde girl who's never had anything bad happen to her you know even though everybody you can't she can't hide that she has something no. bad to happen she has a scar on one hand from trying to commit suicide and a Auschwitz tattoo on the other. She can't at all hide it, but she tries.
3: And I mean, here's a world in which we're basically it's a three-character movie where each one of the characters is pretending to be something that they're not. You know, one is pretending to be a carefree woman, and one is uh, a, an educated man, and the other is someone who's trying to be the great Southern writer. You know, it's like, it's it's an interesting thing that everyone is is trying to be something that they're not.
1: Yeah. And on that note, that makes me think Stingo would be more interesting if it was very clearly he was a bad writer.
3: Mm-hmm. You know, because if mm-hmm. he was a
1: bad writer who I was just, like, trying really hard to be good, and if we were able to know that for sure. Yeah. But we get thrown off with Kevin Klein being like, it's the greatest book ever. But
3: he's also bipolar, so who knows? And, you know, bipolar book reviews are – I don't trust them too much. Um, Amy, I, <laughs> I know it's a weird transition to even ask, but this movie is such a part of our uh, of our pop culture. Was there ever a Simpsons for this movie?
1: There's actually a lot of Simpsons. What? For a moment, I was like, there can't be any Simpsons No, I this. could, yeah. Oh, there's a lot. I mean, actually, early on in The Simpsons' history, they even had an episode just called Selma's Choice, (laughs) where Selma's trying to decide whether or not she wants to have a kid, and she spends a lot of time with Bart, and she's like, nope. Um, They actually get a little lighthearted with Sophie's Choice.
3: I typed in Sophie's Choice (laughs) comedy just to see what I could find, if there was any— Like, you know, in living color sketches And I couldn't find any
1: (laughs) Well, this is from a Simpsons episode Called Postcards from the Wedge And what happens is Bart realizes There's an old subway underneath Springfield He starts trying to run around on the tracks Because he realizes he can cause tiny earthquakes And maybe destroy school Okay. Uh, So he ends up shaking the Quickie Mart And this is what happens inside the Quickie Mart
0: Which flavor do I save? The radical red or the blueberry blast? Curse this these
3: oh, my goodness. Wow. All right. Well, but, I mean, that's what it's become. You know, and we talk about that with Taxi Driver. You know, it's like it's these big emotional moments that all of a sudden become like this, jo- you know, these jokes. Um, but this movie, when it comes out, is rewarded well. You know, it, it gets uh, nominated for Best Actress, which Meryl Streep won, it was nominated for cinematography, which I have to say is beautiful. I love the way the flashbacks are shot versus, you know, the, the whole movie has like a very gauzy kind of nature to it. But even in the way that it, it feels a little bit more dank and maybe even muddy gauzy instead yeah, of like Sybil Shepard, gauzy. Yeah. In
1: the flashbacks, like she's nothing but the darkest eyes. She's yeah. just pale in eyes. She's so hungry. By the way, do you know how she lost all that weight? Wow. Uh, she went on a Riesling diet. She did nothing but drink wine for wow. like three weeks. And she just lost tons of weight and she got really drunk. And she said it was actually kind of a fun time. There oh. is there is this old thing called like the wine diet, which I've always wanted yeah. to try. But I've never quite had the courage. This is not me giving any sort of medical or health advice to anyone on the show. It's yes. an old classic diet that I've read in a lot of old classic diet health books because I think they're really funny. Yeah. But what you do is you, uh, for breakfast, you have one egg cooked without any fat, yeah. uh, and a glass of white wine. And then for lunch, you have another egg and a glass of white wine. And then for dinner, you finish the white wine, and you have one steak. And wow. you're supposed to lose five pounds in a weekend. I've always kind of wanted to try it.
3: Interesting. It's kind of like a, a more intense version of uh, of uh, intermittent fasting. Um, also, Best Costume Design, it was nominated for Best Music by Marvin Hamlish and Best Adapted Screenplay. Um, it's 91- On the AFI's top 100 films list. 91. What do you think about that? I'm just going to give you some context. because, So it's saying it's below swing time. It's above Goodfellas. That's where we're at.
1: Well, you know I don't like Goodfellas. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I really liked this movie, actually. Yeah. But if you're saying, would I rather have for a wonderful, beautiful, handsomely done, gorgeous-looking, romantic film, would I rather have Eternal Sunshine on the list? I would say I think I'd rather have Eternal Sunshine on the list.
3: I I think I might agree with you on that. Like, if Eternal Sunshine and this are fighting it out, this is a beautifully acted, and like I said in the beginning of the podcast, melodrama. It is the best melodrama that I have seen in a very classic, old-fashioned way.
1: Well, what about Sophie versus African Queen?
3: I would prefer Sophie's over African Queen. You know, I mean, if that's what we're talking about. I don't feel strongly that she should be booted, but I also feel like... I don't know if it needs to be there, and that's as someone who was totally connected to this film the entire way through. I, I was there. I was in it to win it. You know, um,
1: it's true. Like I, I really enjoyed this one too. But even to compare it from a film closer to when it came out, I think I'd rather have Amadeus on the list than Sophie. As much as I adored Meryl's yeah. performance, I feel like we keep making all these caveats. Yeah, like because it's great.
3: I know. I feel like we're making these caveats because I think there are things in this movie that are really good. It's an issue we're coming up on time and time again, which is it's a good movie. It's better than most movies. Is it one of the hundred best movies? You know, if there's a list of 200 or 300, yes. You know, and there is a list of 400 films that people pick from that pull it down to this. But I think it goes back to what you always say. It's like, it's a movie that is if I've never, I've never seen this movie, but I've heard of it, and if I saw it on the list, I would of course check off Sophie's Choice because it's just like, well, of course I know this is a this is a big deal movie; it has to be on the list. I don't know though.
1: Well, so Paul, we're on the fence about Sophie's Choice, but maybe Paul's choice, your Amundsen version of it, will be on the list someday. Let's get you prepared. Actually, I want right. I want you to work on your Polish accent. In fact, oh no, here's a lady teaching you how to do a Polish accent. I
3: thought we forgot about this. Damn it. Okay.
1: So my first tip is don't make it sound like Russian
2: and you might as well kind of try to lower your voice a little bit to make it sound more morbid another useful thing is to try and say every letter of the word because we don't really have silent phones so why would we use them in another language, right? duh exceptions are half or hour and this kind of stuff those simple words, but but uh, things like solve, golf, well, uh, those words are so weird, dude. Like the the L isn't there, but still kinda is. Make
1: up your mind, English.
3: Make up your mind, English.
1: So Paul, yes. I want to do something really evil. Okay. Okay. So. With your newfound Polish skills that you mm-hmm. just absolutely mastered just now. That By you way, just I did have a
3: Polish babysitter, so I feel like I've got it you oh. know, kind of just shot it Look at in you, to look head. at yeah. you
1: like with with the fast track. Yeah. Here is an excerpt from the book Sophie's Choice. This is from the moment that Sophie makes the choice. I want you to read this paragraph. There's a couple lines in there that Sophie says, and you can do them in your, in your new Polish okay, accent. Okay, so
3: you want me to go in and out of the accent, so... Or you uh, can do the whole thing. You know what? Uh,
1: Surprise me. You're the artist. Okay. Uh, you're the Kevin Klein. You're the everything. And go this for is, it. again,
3: for you guys to get tickets <laughs> for me at the Amundsen next week. Um, here we go. Mama, she heard Eva's thin but soaring cry at the instant that she thrust the child away from her and rose from the concrete with a clumsy, stumbling motion. Take the baby, she called out. Take my little girl. At this point, the aid with a careful gentleness that Sophie would try without success to forget, tugged at Eva's hand and led her away into the long-waiting legion of the damned. She would forever retain a dim impression that the child continued to look back, beseeching. But because she was now almost completely blinded by the salty thick, copious tears, she was spared. Whatever expression Eva wore, she was always grateful for that. For in the bleakest honesty of her heart, she knew she would never have been able to tolerate it. Driven near mad as she was by her last glimpse of that vanishing small form. I think I nailed it.
0: Wow. <laughs> I (laughs) apologize to the uh,
3: writer of that And everyone who's ever acted
1: Well, so, Paul Yes We should roll the die and figure out what we're doing next week
3: I love it What is it?
1: That was pretty simple It is 70 Ooh That is
3: a clockwork orange (gasps) Ooh, I like that
1: are we ready to go dark?
3: Yeah, I haven't seen that in quite some time. Um, well, I think one of the most interesting things about Clockwork Orange is the language in the film. There's like a whole language in that movie that, uh, you know, is kind of perfectly intertwined in the film. You know, friends are droogs. God is bog.
1: Okay, yeah, let's have people introduce the show in that set. Make up some fun words. Have some fun with it. So what you'll say is the equivalent of like... Hey everybody, welcome to Unspooled. Your hosts are Paul, they're Amy, and this is the show where we go through the AFI Top 100. Something in that, something like that in the key of NADSAT.
3: Yeah, and we will pick the best, most inventive one to introduce next week's show.
1: dun 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 so the phone number you're going to call is, as
3: ever... 747-666-5824.
1: That's 747-666-5824. All right, Droogs, let's do this.
3: Listen Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Tito's Handmade Vodka had been mixed with its fair share of cocktails, but one night a chilled glass topped with lime and cranberry would change everything this bottle knew about happy hour. From the producers of America's Favorite Vodka, it turns out the cocktail you've been waiting for was right there the whole time. The Tito's Rom Cosmo. You'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll sip with Tito's. Coming to cocktail parties near you at titosvodka.com. 40% alcohol by volume, namely 80 proof crafted to be savored responsibly.